Well, good morning to you all. It's good to be with you this morning and to see all of you. Uh, this is the second to the last psalm that we're looking at this summer. Uh, Matt used the word penultimate last summer. I thought that was fun. But next, next week we'll close the, the series on the psalms that we've been doing. And we, we, uh, we started with Psalm 1 at the beginning of June. And this morning we're in Psalm 13. And um, when we got started, one of the things I mentioned to you right when we were getting started is that one of the reasons the Psalms is so valuable to us is that they can teach us to pray. It's always interesting to me that uh, the disciples, after spending some amount of time with Jesus, had some kind of religious stirrings in their heart, actually went to Jesus and asked them, Lord, can you teach us to pray? Uh, and, and Jesus, the way he responded to them was really interesting. He, he, uh, he did speak a little bit about what our hearts look like when we come to God in prayer, but mostly he just gave them a prayer to pray. The same prayer that we sang earlier today in the service. He, he just gave them words. And as we look at Psalm 13, one of the things that we're looking at is, uh, is a prayer that God has given us to pray. That David wrote long ago. And, uh, and like we have seen over the last several weeks, it's another psalm of lament. And, uh, and it's teaching us. God is giving us words that we can use, an almost model prayer that we can use to bring our deepest concerns before God who loves to hear from you. So let me, let me uh, read this. I'll read all six verses, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dig in together. Hear the word of the Lord. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Father, you have gathered us here. Uh, You've gathered us here before you and we have heard from your word. I pray that you would use it to edify us, to encourage us, to remind us who you are, to instruct us. And that you would help me to love your people here, to love them well and to honor you with what I say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was about four years ago. Uh, No, it's not about. It was. It was four years ago when uh, the Boston Globe put out an article that uh, grabbed some of us. It grabbed our attention. And the headline was this. The biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity. It's loneliness. Now, if you're a headline browser, if you're somebody that likes to scroll and, uh, you know, kind of read the headlines as they, as they go by, that one probably grabbed your attention. Uh, and, and probably for a couple of reasons. One is because, you know, we've heard so much our whole lives about the effects of obesity and the effects of smoking. And is it possible that loneliness could be even more toxic to our health than any of those things? And is it really all that common that middle-aged men... Are, uh, are characterized by loneliness? Is that an epidemic amongst us, amongst these other things that we're also wrestling with? And the author went on to answer some of those questions for us. And 
We found out the Surgeon General has been talking about this for years. But he uses his own life as an example, and he says this. This is really interesting. He talks about some of the demands of work and family uh, that are in his life, the way he spends his time. And he says, when everything adds up, there is no real friend time left, is what he said. Yes, I have friends at work and at the gym, but those are accidents of proximity. I love that phrase, accidents of proximity. I rarely see those people anywhere outside those environments because when everything adds up, I have left almost no time for friends. I have structured myself into being a loser, in quote. I don't think he's really fair to himself on that. I don't actually think that lonely people are, are losers. Um, but what he is saying is that he structured his life into being a loner. And you can Google it. Uh, the effects of loneliness are, are real and profound, and they're really widespread. In fact, what he was describing in that article, I interact with in my own life and, and, in many, and with many of you. I see that, that kind of story play out. Because what he's calling us to understand is that we've almost made an art of accumulating friends, but no real friendships. And that loneliness can come to us in all kinds of forms. And aside from the impact that it can have on us and our communities and our, our lives together, it, has, it can be almost unbearable when it intersects with our suffering. It can make suffering almost unbearable for us. It is one of the reasons it is so detrimental to us. Because loneliness has the power to tell us in our suffering that you have nowhere to go to take the deepest concerns of your heart. No one cares or cares enough to understand. As if as soon as you were to articulate them, your friends might disappear. You're on your own. And one of the reasons it is so sweet to see psalms of lament like this one and prayers of lament throughout God's word is that we are being told as God's people who are loved deeply by God is that we always have a place to take our deepest concerns. In fact, David is modeling that for us in a way here in this passage. And every prayer of lament's a little bit different. It often has different ingredients. And as we look at this one, I just want to name three of them for you. The first thing I see is searching. That David, David is searching. He's asking searching questions. And then I see him reason with God some. And then I see him do some remembering. So that's what I'm going to talk to you about is searching Reasoning, remembering, okay? As we look at this, David begins the, the prayer with searching God's will. I'm looking at the four how long questions that are right there in the first couple of verses. It's, it's just awesome. I love this. There's no preamble to this prayer. He's not trying to soften God up. David just like jumps right in with some, with some deep searching questions. And the first one is, you see, David is searching for divine action, and I'm looking at this forgetting language that David used. If you look in verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, David's not questioning God's ability to remember him. Uh, he's not questioning God's memory. Uh, he's not saying, hey, I'm here. Did you forget that I'm here? A biblical language of forgetting and remembering is really about willingness to take action on somebody else's behalf. If you remember somebody, that means that you are moving in their direction and willing to do things for them. If you forget somebody, then that means you're withholding your positive action on their behalf. The classic example is uh, 
is in Exodus 2, where God's people are crying. They're under the weight of Egyptian slavery, and it says they cried out to God with groanings, and then it says that God heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant with them, and he moved on their behalf. And so David is searching God's will for, when will you act on my behalf? And then you see that he's searching for peace. If you look at verse 2, this is really, David's talking about the state of his inner being here in this passage, right at the beginning. He says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? To take counsel in your soul really means to fixate on what's wrong. You know that feeling where you're troubled by something and you can't stop thinking about it? And your whole life becomes about this kind of one thing? That's what David's describing. And taking counsel in my soul and that, that kind of fixation is leading to just a description of overwhelming sadness. And so David's asking, how long? How long, Lord, will I feel this way? I'm searching for peace. And then we also see him searching for vindication. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Now, I know we've talked about this before. Enemy language kind of gets sprinkled through the Bible. God talks to us about how we attend to our enemies. And that can be like, how do I apply that? I I don't think of my enemies. I just think of people who are not my friends, you know. But in this case, an enemy is probably someone who hates you. Like someone who rejoices when you fail. Schadenfreude. Somebody who experiences schadenfreude when, you're, uh, when, you're, when things are not going well for you. And David is saying, how long will my enemy enjoy seeing the sad state of my life? And so you see it here. Divine, peace, divine action, peace, and vindication. Now, who doesn't want those things? Like, who doesn't want God acting on your behalf? Who doesn't want that sense of inner stability and peace? And who doesn't want vindication against the things that people are uh, saying about you or thinking about you or enjoying your suffering? Who doesn't want those things? What occurs to me is that he's asking these questions, how long, as a form of trust. The how long, to ask how long is really a form of trust. It's a form of surrender And I heard it just the other day. I was uh, talking to a friend, a close friend of mine. And he's going through a very, very difficult situation. There's nobody here in this church. He's a friend for a lot of years. And he was on the phone with me describing what he was going through, difficult family situation. And through tears, he prayed a how long prayer. It was, I need your help. I need you to act on my behalf. That's the only way that this will find any kind of a positive resolution. That's what he asked. I need your help, and I don't know how much longer I can bear up under the weight of what I'm going through. That was a how long prayer that my buddy prayed. And it occurs to me that it's one thing to say those things out loud. It's one thing to think those things. It's another thing to say things like that out loud, isn't it? Like it's extremely vulnerable let alone to sing a prayer like this in a congregational setting like this one, right? Because who do you share your deepest questions with? Like, if you think about it, do you have people in your life that you bring the searchings of your heart to? Well, if you do, you bring them to people who you trust. 
You bring them to people who you trust love you, can handle these things that you're wrestling with, will treat your concerns, your searchings with the honor they deserve. And one of the things that we're seeing here is that not only can we bring the deepest searchings of our heart before the Lord, but God is actually inviting us to. David is praying. Did you, ever know, did you notice this? And as I worked through those last couple of verses, did you notice that it almost seems like David might be accusing God of bringing him to this place? Like you're getting a fully orbed picture of David's heart without flinching. And it at least appears that, God, that, that David is coming before God with just a wide range of vulnerability here in this passage. And sometimes I think that we think we can't do that in our relationship with the Lord. Like our prayers have to, uh, have to look a certain way if he's going to, uh, to hear them. Like we have, to, we have to use certain fancy words. And sometimes I pray, I've, sometimes I do this. Sometimes I find myself praying with a voice I can't even recognize. <laughs> like who am, I, who am I praying to again? And, and God here is inviting you to bring all of yourself before him. And he's telling us that he's not like other people. He's not like those people in our, in our life that, whose impressions of us we have to manage. God will not hide his love from us. He will not run away. He is not ashamed of us and the things that we have to bring before him. He is not embarrassed by you. He won't even be surprised by you. But he is saying, come, bring the deep searchings of your heart to me. That's what we're seeing here. And then what we see is that David begins to reason with God. Did you see this here? I don't know how to always make sense of this. This is almost stupefying. But David begins to like reason out the logical outcomes of what would happen to him if God refrains from acting on his behalf. Look at uh, verse 3. He says, unless you act, I will die. Light up my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And then he offers another reason. He says, unless you act, they will win. Look at verse 4. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now let me ask you, what do you think about that? Like what do you think about David entering into an argument with God and, and proposing reasons for, for God to, to try and convince him to act on David's behalf. Like maybe he would change God's mind. What's funny about that is you see, you see, these kind of, you see this kind of relationship characterized all over the Bible. Moses, Moses pled before God to save his people. Do you remember the story of the golden calf? God was very angry. And Moses repeatedly interceded on their behalf. And God agreed with Moses. There's another story. This was funny. There's another story uh, about a man named Hezekiah. He was one of Israel's good kings. And uh, it said, as the story goes, Hezekiah became very, very sick. And, and uh, the prophet Isaiah came to visit Hezekiah and said, Thus says the Lord, um, you should get your house in order because this sickness is going to kill you. And then it says, Hezekiah wept bitterly and prayed. 
ask God to remember him. And then Isaiah wasn't even outside of the house yet before God told him to turn around and go back in and tell him he's going to be healed. Like, what kind of, like, when I look at stories like that, I don't always know what kind of, like, when we hear that, are we actually, is God convinced by us? Like, am I persuading God the Father, the sovereign, omniscient one of something? I don't know. I, I can't always, like, drill down on that. But it's always telling you this, that God hears your prayers, that your, that your heart, your reasonings, the state of your life, your requests, and even your arguments matter to him, that he hears them with sympathy and with deep love. And this is important to us because who do you reason with in your life? Like, who are you willing to argue with? Will you generally argue with people, with people that won't run away when you start arguing with them? You generally reason with people you see are reasonable. Otherwise, why would you waste your arguments on somebody who won't hear them? So what you see in David here in this passage is something God wants you to understand is that he he wants all of you to come before him in prayer. He is inviting every part of you, the angry part, the emotional part, the the part that's sad, the part that... uh, that thinks, the part that makes arguments, the part that can't understand what God uh, is doing, he's asking for you to come to him with all of those things. Now, this is deeply personal stuff, isn't it? Like, we're getting a picture, I think, throughout this psalm of the deeply personal relationship that God desires to have with his people. As we consider who we reason with, as we consider who we share our searchings with, we're getting a picture of just how close God wants us to be with him. And in fact, it seems to me that it's in the searchings, that it's in the reasonings that leads David to be able to say these next couple verses of trust. He actually begins to remember who God is in this passage. Look, it says the first thing that David remembers is who got, look at verse five, but I have trusted in your steadfast love is what he says. Now that steadfast love, that is a, that is a transcendent word. That is a, a radiant Hebrew word because steadfast love is the sturdiest of loves. Steadfast love doesn't run when things get difficult. Steadfast love is a love of deep covenant commitment that God extends to his people. And David is remembering the deep covenant committed relationship that God has with him. And friends, steadfast love transcends all things. Steadfast love has the power to transcend generations. Because if you look to God in faith, if you look to Jesus in faith, then you're the object of God's steadfast love too. It, it, it transcends David and extends to people of faith like you and me. And it certainly transcends our sufferings. And so he remembers who God is. He remembers that God is a God of steadfast love, of a love so much more profound than you and I can even muster up. But he also remembers what God has done. Look at verse 8. David just confesses that, that everything he has, every good thing he enjoys, God has dealt bountifully with me. 
that God has been exceedingly generous to me. The, the position that I have, the, the things that I have, the relationships I have, every single ounce of that I enjoy because God has been generous to me. And so what you see in David is that he cultivates a kind of redemptive memory, doesn't he? He, he begins to remember, his perspective begins to shape to understand just who God has been in his past. Now, look, most Psalms have a trajectory, right? Like we've talked about this all summer long, with the path that it's on, but you certainly see a number, number of them in this passage. You see a trajectory of relationship. David, remember, David begins with almost accusing God, and now he's remembering who God is and what he's done for him in the past. It's this trajectory of relationship that David, that David is on. You also see a trajectory of perspective. I can talk. Perception. David was fixated. It was all he could see was the way that he was suffering. And now David's perception has been expanded to understand just the scope of what God might be up to in his life. So it's this trajectory of perception. And there's a trajectory of hope that David fears death in this psalm. And now what does he say? He says, he says, uh, now he is rejoicing in his salvation. You see that? That David's on a path through this psalm. And it's a redemptive one that leads to understanding because I know that God has worked in my past. I know that he continues and sovereign will and love toward me now and in my future. Listen, um, this is what redemptive memory can do for us. Because suffering, it can keep us focused on the present, but a redemptive memory helps us see the circumstances of our lives and the trajectory that God has us on. If we can trust that God has worked in our past, then we can also trust our present and our future to him. And listen, the story of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has indeed worked in your past. That before you even took a breath, Christ had worked in your past. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that one should lay down his life for his friends. And the story of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, before you even knew his name, was considering you a friend and laying down his life for you. And he worked in your past and he is working in your present. And one of the ways that Christ, there are all kinds of ways that Christ holds us in faith right now. And, And one of them is just simply that he sent someone he called a helper. He sent his Holy Spirit to be with us. That he indwells us and he speaks to us. He convicts us. He edifies us. He encourages us and deepens us in faith. It's one of the ways that he holds us is that he is a seal over our hearts, guiding us. And Christ is indeed at work in us, and not just in us individually, but in us as a community. One of the gifts that he's given to each of us is Christ in you living alongside each other. So one of the ways that help us understand just who Jesus is. So Christ is at work in our past and our present. And Christ right now said he's preparing a place for us. That he is at work right now preparing for our future. And he left us with a promise that he will come back 
And the sweetness of the gospel is that Christ was already at work before we were here. Christ is at work in us now. That Christ is at work in our future. And he is, when he attends to you, he is attending to all of you. Not just what's wonderful. And there's a lot that's wonderful about you. But he is attending to the part of you that's difficult. He's attending to the parts of you that are ugly. He's attending to the parts of you that, that are beautiful all at the same time. And the gospel message is such good news because he attends to all of us. And so listen, if you're here and you feel alone, and if you're here and if you're enduring suffering, and you're wondering about the trajectory of your life and what God might be up to, I want you to hear that these are the truest things about you, is what Jesus has said about you, what he has done for you, his love that covers you. Those are the truest things about you. Let me tell you a silly story and then I'll be done. I heard from my wife yesterday that this was a common prank that was done some time ago. I didn't know that. But when I was in high school, a few of my friends went on a trip together. Um, <clears throat> they all went. I wasn't invited. I was, a, I was very lonely. <laughs> and uh, this guy was going to the beach with his family, and he took a few friends with him. Um, and they were staying at this hotel that doesn't exist anymore. It's in Hampton. It was called Strawberry Banks. And uh, at this hotel, they had a pool, uh, and there was uh, a big strawberry painted on the bottom of the pool. And my friends, he should have really taken better friends with him, okay? I, could, I was right there. And, uh, but anyway, my friends uh, told the guy who brought them to the beach that that uh, strawberry at the bottom of the pool was actually a scratch and sniff sticker. And he doubted it. He's like, no, there's no way that's a scratch, scratch and sniff sticker. But apparently they were so insistent and they would actually go down to the bottom of the pool and act it out as if they were scratching and sniffing at the bottom of the pool. And, uh, and they'd come up and say, it's amazing. It smells like strawberries down there. And so eventually he just decided, okay, well, maybe, maybe it actually is. Surely these guys wouldn't lie to me. And without thinking it through, he just goes down to the bottom of the pool and they see it. You know, they see him like try to swim down there and like scratch it. And then all of a sudden it happens. And uh, he like inhales pool water and it was chaos at that point so he comes up to the surface of the pool and he's just thrashing about and he's scared and he's yelling and uh, there's yelling and all of this is kind of noisy but there was one intelligible word that they all heard when uh, when uh, during all that time and he cried it was because he cried out for his mother now my friends because they were the worst they made fun of him for that I mean the worst but you know what was, you know who thought that was incredibly sweet? His mom. Because it told her that in his moment of need, she was the one he thought of. And listen, when we engage in lament, that, that might feel vulnerable, it might feel risky, it might feel scary. I want you to understand that you are crying out to somebody that loves to hear from you. That loves to hear the honest bearing of the deepest questions of your heart. That's what we're seeing in this passage, and that's really who God is. Let me pray. God, I just pray you would help us to believe that that's true. 
I pray that you would protect us from hiding from you. Uh, I pray that you would draw near to those who are lonely right now, draw near to the suffering, and help us, Lord. Hold us in faith, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.